Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am going to be showing you around Oxford, essentially. I have lived in Oxford for most of my life. I know the city and the university very well. I've led lots of tours around the city and I have decided to record this information and post it as a podcast. Uh, the hope being that you guys interested in showing yourselves around Oxford can listen to this and hopefully gain a bit more of an insight into what the city and the university is really all about. So this introduction, this first chapter, can be listened to anywhere, really. It's going to be about 15 minutes long, and I'll give you a bit of an introduction to both Oxford and its famous university. The following chapters are all going to be location-based. I will be uploading a map of the various stops on the tour, and uh, so have a little look at the podcast information for that. So, an introduction to Oxford. Humans have been living in this area for an awful long time, since the Metholithic period. That's defined as 15,000 to 8,000 BC. The city now known as Oxford, however, was first settled by the Anglo-Saxons in the early 8th century AD. The Saxons settled here because of a natural ford in the River Thames. The River Thames being the longest river in England, which flows through the centre of the city of Oxford and onto London. A ford was simply a shallow path in the river that essentially allowed people to cross without the use of a bridge. This particular ford was large enough for farmers to cross their oxen. Thus, the village that was known to Saxons back in the 7th century was known as Oxna Forda, literally the ford for oxen. So where better to start with the history of Oxford than with the city's patron saint, St Friesweid? A lady possessing of both beauty and intelligence, Friesweide was born around 650 AD to Dida of Ancham, a powerful Mercian sub-king. Despite her intentions to devote her life to God, Friesweide caught the eye of an affectionate but stubborn king called Ethelbold, who sought her hand in marriage. Intent on a life of celibacy, Friesweide of course rejected the king's advances. Ethelbold, however, being hopelessly in love and conveniently rather powerful, decided to abduct the young Friedswide. Fortunately, she was able to escape and flee in secret to the nearby village of Bampton before Ethelbold got his hands on her. However, the king refused to back down and turned the town of Oxnaforda upside down in his dogged pursuit of the young lady. His pursuit continued until one day, legend has it that the king was suddenly struck blind. He recognised this as a punishment from God. Ethelbold made a public apology to Friedswide, and shortly thereafter she returned to her home in Oxnaforda and forgave the sorrowful king. The king's eyesight was miraculously restored, and Friedswide spent the rest of her life in God's service, founding a monastery in what is now central Oxford. The monastery of St Friedswide stood for centuries until the 13th of November 1002 a fateful day that would have a dramatic impact on both Oxonian and English history. At the time, southern England had been consistently targeted by Danish raiding parties, who would sail from northern Germania and southern Scandinavia to ravage the towns and villages of England, plundering their contents and murdering their inhabitants. The King of England at the time, Ethelred the Unready, heard whispers that a group of Danes were plotting his assassination. 
In response to the rumour, Ethelred ordered that any Dane found within his kingdom be executed without trial. Unfortunately for her, a Danish lady called Gunhild Forkbeard happened to be visiting the famed Frideswide Monastery in Oxnaforda at the time. On hearing of Ethelred's decree, Gunhild barricaded herself with her party in the monastery, thinking that the townspeople of Oxnaforda would not dare commit murder inside of this sacred building. Unfortunately for Gunhild, she was very much mistaken, and the locals set fire to the building, killing her and everybody else inside. Unbeknownst to the town people of Oxnaforda, Gunhild Forkbeard was the sister of a powerful Danish king, Sven Forkbeard. Somehow they didn't recognise the surname. In response to the murder of his sister, King Sven invaded England, and in 1009 he raided Oxnaforda, sacking the city and murdering most of its population. Over the following four years, Sven continued his insurgency around Ethelred's kingdom, forcing the submission of several powerful thanes, thanes being local sub-kings, if you like, slowly eating away at the English king's power. Indeed, by 1014, Ethelred had recognised the situation as untenable and fled to northern France with his son. On Christmas Day of that year, Sven was pronounced king of the English. Just five weeks after his ascension, Sven passed away. His youngest son, Knut, was proclaimed his successor in England. Unfortunately, Knut was not particularly popular with English nobles, and shortly after his ascension, Ethelred's son Edmund decided that now was the time to return to the Kingdom of England to stake his claim as king. The subsequent war between the two young claimants ended in a decisive victory for Knut at the Battle of Ashingdon in 1016. Nonetheless, Canute and Edmund agreed to split the Kingdom of England, with Canute ruling everything north of the River Thames and Edmund in control of the provinces to the south. Six weeks after the truce was agreed, however, Edmund was assassinated. Legend has it that one of Canute's noblemen, a man called Edric, had his son hide in a privy, essentially a, a medieval toilet. And as Edmund sat down to relieve himself, the young man pointed his sword upwards and pushed Quite how Edmund was recognised from this southern angle is still a subject of debate among historians, as you may imagine. But the young king did die. Knut, shortly thereafter, travelled to Oxford, where he was pronounced king of the English, much like his father had been not so long before. Years later, by the time of the Norman invasion in 1066, Oxnaford, as it was then known, was recognised as an important strategic outpost. Following his defeat of Harold Goodwinson at the Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror granted extensive lands around modern-day Oxfordshire to one of his most trusted Norman noblemen, Robert Doyle, who sacked the town and set about constructing a castle to dominate it. At this point, the wooden fortifications of the town began to be replaced with a stone wall. Indeed, sections of both the wall and castle, initially constructed by Robert Doyle, still remain to this day. From this point on, Oxford remained a very important strategic settlement in England. King William II held his royal court in Oxford in 1088, and in 1130, King Henry I constructed Beaumont Palace in central Oxford, which acted as an important royal residence for centuries to come. Oxford is, of course, especially well-known because of its world-famous university. While no exact date for the foundation of the university has been agreed upon, academics began to gather in Oxford from the late 11th century. In 1167, things began to pick up steam. 
King Henry II of England banned all English scholars from studying at the University of Paris, at the time one of just two universities in all of Europe. This forced English scholars to find a new place to study. Many ended up in Oxford, due in no small part actually to the significant city walls that would keep the scholars safe. In the early years of the university, students associated together into different groups based on geographical origins. The two main groups were initially known as nations. Students who came from the north of England were known as Borealis, while students from the south were known as Australis. At this time, the education on offer in Oxford was very limited, extending only to religious studies and training for life spent in a monastic brotherhood. Students lived and studied in separate halls and received funding from different benefactors. Later, the nations in the city began to divide again, this time based on religious differences. And by the early 13th century, dozens of independent halls populated the city, each with their own facilities and their own tutors. A number of wealthy private benefactors began to establish their own communities within the city. Much like the halls, though far wealthier, these communities, known as colleges, were self-contained independent academic institutions. And by the end of the 13th century, there were four of them. Balliol College, Merton College, University College and Hartford College. All four of these are still in operation today. So, the University of Oxford. The first thing that many visitors want to know on arrival in the city is, where is the famous university? People expect Oxford to be like other universities. You know, arrive at the entrance, you see a large sign saying, welcome to the university of, of wherever it might be. And as you walk in, you will see the library and the cafeteria, student accommodation and playing fields, lecture halls, all that sort of a thing. As we've just discovered, the University of Oxford uses this collegiate system, the same system that arose in the 13th century. There are now 38 colleges each with their own libraries, their own dining halls, their own accommodation, their own tutoring rooms, their own sports teams and facilities, their own everything. In addition to the colleges, there are faculty buildings, subject departments, laboratories, other libraries, lecture theatres, various other central university facilities which combine with the colleges to form the University of Oxford as it is known today. On acceptance into the University of Oxford, every full-time student will become a member of one of the 38 colleges. A student's college becomes their home in the city. It's where they live, eat, play and sleep. Unlike centuries past, colleges are now primarily pastoral. Most studying is facilitated by the subject faculties. For example, if you decide to study history, you could end up a member of just about any college. And while that will have an enormous bearing on your overall experience of Oxford, you will still study alongside students from lots of other colleges, at faculty buildings for lectures or in tutoring rooms of other colleges for tutorials. With this brief introduction to both the city and the University of Oxford, it's time to begin the tour. Please download the next chapter in which we will be discussing several of the university's colleges, the experience of their students, and of course, some of the university's bizarre traditions. For example, the annual tortoise race.